From the Financial Times in London, I'm Patrick Jenkins, the FT's financial editor, and this is FT News. All of the UK's banks have passed the latest round of stress tests administered by the Bank of England. But there's a mixed bag of news in terms of the risks they've found and the ability of banks to pay dividends going forward. Well, to discuss that, I'm joined by Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, and from PwC, Isabel Jenkins. In a word, Martin, they were good, right? They were better than last year when two banks failed parts of the test and had to take remedial action. This year, for the first time since the stress tests began in 2014, no bank has had to take remedial action. However, there were two banks that did fall below their minimum targets in the stress scenario, Royal Bank of Scotland and Barclays. But both of those banks have, since the start of this year, taken sufficient actions to boost their capital that they would now pass the tests. So therefore, they don't have to take any remedial action. So yes, it's better. But the overall fall in the capital of the banks as a result of the test was greater than last year. And the test itself was tougher, with a bigger fall in world GDP and a greater fall in house prices in the UK in particular. And I think the key topic of conversation was, it's all about Brexit. Mark Carney, the governor at the Bank of England, said that this test was at least equivalent to the worst case scenario for Brexit. So he's confident that the banks are in a strong enough position to withstand even the worst hard Brexit scenario. Let me bring Caroline in here because one of those Brexit preparation measures, I suppose, relates to the counter-cyclical buffer being increased. And that's quite a significant thing, isn't it, for the banks? Well, I'll just pick you up on one thing. The increase of the buffer was actually to guard against risks other than Brexit. So the stress test, as Martin's explained very well, meant that the Bank of England is now confident that UK banks could withstand the worst of Brexit. However, the big question, as Carney put it, is what happens if something else happens? So things that they're worried about, it's a typical financial stability report laundry list that we have, but things like consumer credit that they've been warning about for a long time, They're slightly concerned about asset valuations around the world, global debt, misconduct, all those kind of things that the Bank of England typically worries about. So we're going into Brexit. If there should be a hard Brexit, which the Bank of England thinks is unlikely still, what happens then if we have other headwinds that the bank has to face? And that's what this buffer is there to guard against. And it equates to a six billion top up in that's in right. capital, yeah. taking the total of I think eleven point four billion that's in this buffer. When this buffer was first enacted, what six twelve months ago, it was a little bit of massaging, wasn't it? Because it was capital that already was in the banks that got reallocated as counter cyclical money. Is this six billion actually new capital that needs to be injected? At the moment, the banks already have it, essentially, but they're holding it as voluntary capital, so above their regulatory minimums. So what they're doing is essentially locking it in as compulsory capital. But the counter-cyclical buffer has been a little bit complicated ever since October 2015, when the bank first said it was minded to launch it. And then obviously the Brexit referendum happened and they said, OK, well, actually, we were going to launch it but now we're not, we're going to go back to zero. And then it went back up to 0.5%. And now eventually it's going to be 1% by this time next year, which is the level that the bank sees as appropriate in what they call a standard risk environment. Okay. 
Well, let me bring in Isabel Jenkins now, who is head of banking at PwC. You've been studying all the pronouncements of the Bank of England this morning. Do you agree with the assessment of Martin and Caroline on the big picture stuff? And what else would you take away? So yes, on the whole, yes, I agree. It's a good outcome. As Martin said, it was the most difficult stress test so far, and all the banks have passed. So that's a really good thing. I think one of the things that's really interesting about it, though, is it does highlight exactly the levels of capital that a bank needs to hold. And particularly then, if you take that in the context of one of the exploratory scenarios, so there was the main scenario, there was also another exploratory scenario that looked at increased competition coupled with weak GDPR and growth rates and low interest rates. And obviously, the government and the Competition and Markets Authority have been trying to increase competition in the banking sector. But you end up with two main themes. One, the amount of capital that any bank needs to hold. Then the implications of entry to the marketplace. And then three, actually what happens if you have non-banking players coming and really targeting some of the more profitable products. And is this going to be captured increasingly in stress tests in the future, do you think? Is this an area that needs to be got at more? So it's a big risk. I think it's a risk. It will be interesting to see how it's built into future stress tests and how you can really model it out. Because I think what we've seen in the stress tests really focuses on some very particular financial implications and growth and interest rates. Competition, you know, maybe is harder to model, but you need to have some scenarios. But with the introduction of both open banking and then the payments regulation PSD2 in early 2018, which means that the large banking groups have to open up and share banking data with other providers and with the fintechs, that will make a change to the business models that we see in the marketplace. And that, of course, links into something I've spent my morning at an FT cyber risk conference where we were talking about some of the non-credit related risks, obviously, in banking, which don't get covered in this stress test, but are part of the regulator's concern, certainly going forward. Caroline, you wanted to add something and then Martin. Yeah, I was just going to add that this exploratory scenario, which we've seen for the first time this year, the bank is going to be doing every other year. Now, for the last couple of years, they've put an end to the raise of the governor's eyebrows. They want to be far more transparent in the way that they communicate messages. However, what I would say is that the exploratory scenario, in a way, is a new form of that old eyebrow raising. It's asking banks to take a proper look at what their future strategy is and how they're going to cope with future challenges and ask, have you really thought about this? Perhaps you should go away and think a little bit harder. So in that respect, it very much could be seen akin to those old fireside chats. Martin? Yeah, just a final word. One of the important things about the stress test is what it means for dividends and the bank's ability to pay out excess capital to shareholders. And the reading of analysts and the market reaction is quite interesting because even though RBS, as we said, was one of those that fell below its minimum level in the test, it's been generating so much capital that analysts are quite positive now that it will restart dividends next year. Lloyd's, which was one of the best performers in the stress test, actually there's concern now that because it's got such little headroom, because there was such a big fall in its capital, it was still above the minimums, but the size of the fall in Lloyd's capital because of its expansion into consumer credit, which was one of the hardest hit areas in this stress test, leaves it with little amount of headroom. There's concern that Lloyd's ability to increase its dividend payments has been restricted. So its shares are the biggest faller among the big banks this morning, down more than 2.5%. That's a crucial point. Well, thanks all for that assessment of the stress test. 
This is a segment from the FT Banking Weekly podcast, which comes out every Tuesday and can be downloaded from all the usual podcast apps. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.